The following sermon is from Redemption Bible Church of New Braunfels, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology, in order to fulfill the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. Today we're starting a new sermon series. You ready for it? Do you have those passages of Scripture that you kind of come back to, really meaningful to you, that uh, God used maybe at a specific time in your life? Do you have some of those that are just like those oldies, you know, that's like, okay, I just, I need to come back to this one because it's, it's been meaningful in my life. Do you have one of those, a section of scripture or maybe a verse that you come back to? Um, so, uh, Genesis is one of those, Genesis uh, 37 and the life of Joseph, where we are going to spend the next several weeks in. And so we're beginning this new series called God Meant It for Good, Seeing God's Faithfulness in Every Circumstance. And if you've ever read Genesis, you know that it's a riveting book, isn't it? It's a riveting book. It's full of irony, scandal, twists and turns, love and hate. It's a story of creation. It's the story of sin's origins. It's also the story of redemption. God makes promises to these obscure people and he goes to great lengths to keep them despite all these great obstacles. And this entire book, it's 50 chapters, but the entire book is summed up in that last chapter, verse 20, when Joseph tells his brothers and us, the readers, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And that verse there is the theme of the entire book of Genesis. Lots of uh, information from our creation to the initial working of God in people, but all of it is summed up there in that verse. I would encourage you to look it up. It's Genesis 50 verse 20. And when you see those two words, but God, just circle that in your Bible. Anytime you're reading through the Bible and you see those two words together, circle them, take note of it, study it. Why is God intervening in that situation? But that verse is really, it's also the Romans 8.28 of the Old Testament. Romans 8.28, if you're unfamiliar, and we know, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Those who are called according to his purpose. And these truths, these truths here of God's providential work in our life and faithfulness to his promises are as clear as in Joseph's life as they are in any section of scripture. God's faithfulness, God's covenant faithfulness are clear in these chapters. And so really I'm excited to study this with you and watch God continue his work in our lives individually to shape our understanding and to stir our hearts through this series, really uh, individually, but also corporately. So you ready to get into it? Turn there to Genesis 37 if you're not there. Genesis is the first book of the Bible. So just go to the very beginning, flip back 37 chapters, bada bing, bada boom, there you are. That's where we're going to be. And you know what? Each of these chapters, as we walk through this series, they're going to have a principle that God is highlighting, something that he is bringing to the surface, an overarching theme, a principle of God's providence or his faithfulness that we need to know from this story. 
it, it's, uh, what it really means is that each week, as we're in this, you're going to walk away with one fundamental truth to hold on to. And I would just encourage you, um, so you can come back to it, so you can remember it, is that each week, write in your Bible at the top of that chapter head the, that main theme. It'll be obvious. I call it the nail sometimes or the big idea. But this one fundamental truth that God is highlighting or bringing to the surface about his character and how, what we can expect uh, in light of his character and how to live. And so it's okay to write in your Bibles, right? Everyone agree with that? Yeah, it's okay. It's a good thing. As you, as you uh, study this, as you read it, as you go back to it, maybe weeks, months, or even years later, you can see the truth there, and it will rec- uh, just recall to mind what God has done in your life. Because we're kind of forgetful, aren't we? We're forgetful. I like to go back and see the different notes that I wrote here. So, I want to give it to you now, so you can see as we get in. We're going to go into it. You're like, all right, Blair, let's get to the, the verse, right? All these introductory things. Let's get in. I can see it. But uh, I want to give it to you here, this big idea, and then you'll see how the whole chapter points back to it as we go. You ready for it? It's this. Bad things can happen even when we follow God. That's the big principle. You're like, oh, great, one of these messages? Bad things can happen even when we follow God. It's in your notes there. You can put it, write it in your Bible so you don't forget. But this is the, kind of, the, the jewel. This is the point that is being highlighted in this chapter. Bad things can happen even when we follow God. And now Joseph's story picks up in the middle of some messed up family dynamics. Family dynamics. Look here with me as I read the first few verses of Genesis 37. Follow along in these family dynamics. It says this, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their fathers loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. How are those for some family dynamics? How's that for a a, a loving family? Here, Jacob is Joseph's father living in the promised land. That's where verse 1 picks up. They traveled out of the land, this whole family history that Genesis is leading us up to. If we were uh, looking at the previous chapters, we would see this. But Jacob now is a a father. He's living in the land of Canaan, or what we know as the promised land. And Jacob is not a great dude. He has a history of deception. He's lied, cheated, and stole his whole life to get to uh, this place place where he is now in a variety of contexts. Uh, Just go and read it and you'll see what I'm talking about. But we get to verse 2 here then, and this is a marker for a new section in Genesis. Moses, who wrote the book of Genesis, divides up uh, this book into really 10 episodes. And you know the division, you know that it's a new episode by verses like this. In Hebrew, it's the word toldot, and we just translated it's generations. And so actually, uh, we're, we're calling this the story or the life of Joseph, but in actuality, it's, it's uh, the story of Jacob. 
Okay, Jacob the father, and Joseph is just one of the primary characters. He's, he's, uh, um, he, he's going to be at the forefront here, and so we'll, we'll get more into that in future chapters. I want to, at this point, just make a little commercial break. As we get into this, uh, this series, if you want to continue your study and go deeper... I'm not going to refer to this book much, but I would highly recommend this book called Joseph by Pastor Vody Bauckham. Uh, he wrote this and uh, walks through it. It's very accessible. It's a great book, and it will help you as we study it here in, in uh, uh, Sunday mornings and then in small group. This, just in your own reading, I recommend this right here. If you want to look at it after the service, just uh, holler at me, and I'll, I'll let you look at it. But there's that. So right away, we're now thrust into this family mess. This is Jacob's family. He's the dad. He's living in the promised land, which is a part of God's covenant, uh, way back to Abraham, who was Jacob's uh, grandfather and Joseph's great-grandfather. God made this promise that he would have uh, offspring, that he would have land, and that he would keep this covenant with them. All right? And so we're, we're just thrust into this, and life is a mess. You see now in verse 2 here, look with me. Joseph is a teen. And what's his, what's his job? He's a... Shepherd, yeah, a shepherd, a common uh, uh, occupation in those days, but he's a, he's a shepherd with his brothers, and he was a boy with the sons of uh, Bilhah and Zilpah. These are servants of uh, Jacob's wives, and so you want to add like a whole messed up family here. J- Jacob has a wife, Rachel and Leah, and these two others are their servants that they give to, to Jacob, and now he has 12 sons between the four wives. And so it's kind of a, a mixed mash here of a family, but Joseph is with these sons, and what does he do? He comes back and he brings a bad report. He tattles on his brothers. They weren't watching the sheep well. We don't know exactly what it is, but he brought a, a bad report. Does that ever go well? If you've got siblings, it doesn't matter if you're one of 12 or you're one of two. When you tattle on your siblings, does that ever go well? Especially when you're one of the youngest. Now, Joseph in line, he's number 11 of 12. Okay, does that ever go well? No, it doesn't go well. It doesn't go well, or it didn't go well. Children, it, it doesn't go well to tattle on your siblings. But he does, and Jacob, or Israel here, now this is something to take note of. In verse 3, Israel is Jacob's covenant name. God gives him a new name, Israel. And so it just kind of interchanges back and forth through these chapters. Uh, We'll look at the significance of that in a a future message. But uh, here, just know that it's the same guy. Israel, what does he do? Not only does he have all these sons, and this particular son has tattled, but the dad is showing favoritism. Now parents, particularly dads, does it go well when you show, uh, play favorites with your children? Oh, yeah? yeah? <laughs> no, it doesn't normally go wrong, or it doesn't normally go well, but this is his covenant name, and he's playing favorites, and he's making it obvious with this jacket, this multicolored jacket. Now, I don't have a multicolored jacket, but I wore a multicolored shirt for you today. Um, and he, he's playing his favorites. He made him a robe of many colors because he loved him more than all of his brothers. And what does it do? It causes them to hate him, hate him so much so that they couldn't even speak peacefully to him. Now, that's a, that's a level of hatred, right? Can you re- relate to a, a family like that? Can you relate to uh, just a, a situation like that where jealousy, hatred, fighting, all this tension that is so thick that even the brothers, they can't, 
They, 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 they can't even speak to one another. They're rival, they're jockeying for position. There's, there's just, you know, it's, it's one of those situations where at any moment the, the whole thing could explode. One wrong word, one wrong topic. If you bring up politics again, then right? That one wrong comment, one wrong look, and it's going down. This family is a mess. Can you relate to that? You got a family like that or family situations, those uh, family reunions that you just do not want to go to because of all the, there's multiple marriages, there's favoritism, there's neglect, there's just backbiting. That's the situation that we find ourselves in. But let me tell you something. As we begin, and as we kind of keep that main theme uh, as a banner above this chapter, let me tell you something, that God is the master at creating beauty out of messes. God is the master at creating beauty from the mess. It's his specialty. It's his specialty. This is what he does. And so what Moses is doing here, as this is going to be the highlighted truth, he's, he's bringing to light just a bit, just a bit of this messed up family dynamics. And it's really to show us that, here's our takeaway, that God works with messed up people. He works through sinful people. And our job is really just to embrace the mess. This is, this is where we are. This is our starting point that maybe it's not to the uh, extreme here, but all of us are, 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 are sinful. Not one of us is perfect in our pursuit of the Lord. This is who God works with. And praise God that he does, right? Praise God that he is working even despite messed up family dynamics. But from here, do you think that the story gets better or gets worse? As we continue on, some of you know the story. Here, how about a, a, a thumbs up or a thumbs down? If you think that the story is going to get better from here, give me a thumbs up. If you think that it's going downhill, put it down. What do you think? It's okay. If there's, I'm not really counting. Okay, you said up. Some of you are like, ah, I don't really know. Some of you have read on and you know, that's right. That's right. But it's actually going to get worse. Look at verse 5 with me. Let me read it to you. So remember, these brothers, they can't even speak peacefully. There's favoritism going on. And now Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. And he said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field. And behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. And so Joseph has this dream of sheaves. Like, just picture on the field, they've cut these, these uh, you know, uh, big tall stalks, all that stuff. And uh, just picture them, they've been bound together. And his is standing upright and all the others bound to him. And so as a younger sibling, if you tell your siblings that, hey, one day you're going to bow down to me. Think that's going to go over well? No. Of course, they hate him more. Look where it goes, because he has another dream in verse 9. Then he, this is Joseph, dreamed another dream, and he told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I've dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father, this time and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father's kept the saying, or his father rather, kept the saying in mind. 
So he has two, these two dreams, and he tells his family about him. One about the brothers, one then with the heavens, and that the whole family was going to bow down to him. Not good, right? Nope, no, not, not, not great. Imagine, parents, imagine your teenager saying, hey, one day, you're going to bow down to me. You're going to, I'm going to rule over. That, that seems pretty ludicrous, right? That seems that, that, are these dreams really from the Lord, or is this just some teenager's pride? I mean, we've probably been around teenagers, right? They have big dreams about how they're going to live and they're going to do better than you and they're going to advance more and they're going to have a, uh, make more money than you. And, and uh, is this just the teen's pride and ambition or are these really from the Lord? All of it seems kind of ludicrous, doesn't it? It seems a little bit outlandish. But you know, here's the thing. Genesis is full of ludicrous stories. I mean, you're familiar with all these, and uh, sometimes our familiarity uh, in that, we lose the outlandishness, that's a word I just made up, of the stories. Like, just think of Noah. God appears to him and tells him, hey, I'm going to judge the earth, and I'm going to destroy everything. Go build a big boat to preserve you, yourself, and your family, and a bunch of animals. I mean, upon first hearing that, that seems pretty ludicrous. Abraham, in the same way, Abraham's living life up in, in his hometown, and God appears to him and says, hey, you got to leave, take your family and leave, I'm not telling you where you're going, but come follow me. He gets sent out, not knowing where he's going. It's pretty outlandish, pretty ludicrous. Sarah, his wife, then, years later, she's told, hey, you're going to have a baby when she's 90 years old. That's crazy, right? We first hear that this is ludicrous. Is this, uh, this has got to be some kind of joke. And not only would she have a baby, but then those descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky. And the crazy part in their life then is after they have the baby, miracle, crazy, blows our minds, then Abraham is told, hey, actually go sacrifice that son. Yeah, the one that I promised you about, yeah, all that stuff, well, go sacrifice him on an altar. It's ludicrous. Genesis is full of all these stories and who comes through? The Lord comes through. The Lord comes through even in the midst of these outlandish ideas and these dreams that Joseph is dreaming are just another bit in the whole storyline of Genesis. And oftentimes what God calls his people to do seems crazy at first, doesn't it? Just think of the life that God has called us to live as his people. We live counterculturally. We're not to, to live in whatever way is uh, socially acceptable at the time. He may not give dreams of great prominence or call you to build an ark, but he does call us to live holy and set apart, doesn't he? Scripture calls us to live holy and set apart. It might just be simply, well, I can't put my kid on this soccer team because it's going to take me away from our family things. It's going to dominate our schedule. It's going to keep us out of church. All these things. I can't, I can't do that. And that might seem ludicrous to the people around you. It might be something positive. It might be, you know what? I'm going to actually move into a neighborhood because I want to be around more people that I can reach them with the gospel, tell them about Jesus, be hospitable. And that flies in the face of what is socially acceptable. The idea is to, no, we want to move away. We want to, we, we want to have our property. We want to be away from everybody. And no, the Lord's saying, no, I want you to be around people. These are things that may seem outlandish to God's people. 
But here's our takeaway. God's plan can seem ludicrous, but we entrust our life. We entrust our life to him. Whose plan is best? God's or ours? Yeah. Even when we can't see the way ahead? Yeah, who knows the end from the beginning? God does. And so if he's calling us to that, his way is best, even when it seems ludicrous, even when it seems outlandish, even when it seems that there is no way forward, or it is just too hard. This is the cost of following the Lord. So Joseph has these dreams. He tells them to his brothers. They hate him even more. His father keeps these things in mind. Do you think it gets better or worse from here? Better, worse. Where's it going? Somewhere in between? Let's find out. Here, let's read the rest of the chapter. Buckle up, and I'll read these last uh, several verses for us. Coming out of this, verse 12, it says, Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. It's a long ways off, 50 miles away or so. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to them, Here I am. And so he said to them, now, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So that's a big mission, right? He's saying, Here he's entrusting a 17 year old to travel many miles, probably 50 miles on foot by himself to go and check in on his brothers. Let's continue on. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields. That'd be kind of odd, right? Here's just a 17 year old boy wandering around in the wilderness probably take notice. He said, tell me please where they are pasturing the flock. The man said, they have gone away for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So they're, they're, they've even journeyed on from Shechem. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. Verse 18, they saw him from afar. So they see Joseph coming up on a hill and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer got to read it with a little snarky voice right come now let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him and we will see what will become of his dreams they have a plot to kill him verse 21 but when reuben now mind you reuben is the oldest brother When Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, let us not take his life. So Reuben comes to his rescue. Reuben is the voice of reason in the midst of all the brothers. I mean, have you ever been in a group like this, and it's just like the mob mentality, and they're like, oh, let's kill him, yeah, 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 and then all of a sudden, like, all reason, all uh, level of sanity is just gone out the window, and they're... You know, that's, this is how bad things happen in looting and rioting and mobs and all that stuff. But Reuben, the oldest brother, at least he's got a bit of reason. Verse 22, Reuben said to them, shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him. So here's what he thought, that he might rescue him out of their hand or restore him to his father. So even though it appears that Reuben is protecting his brother, he's actually manipulating the situation because, oh, let's just throw him into a pit. And then he'll send the rest of the brothers on and then he'll go in, rescue him out. He knows that Joseph is the favorite. And if he does that, brings him back to dad, well, now who's gonna be on dad's good side? Reuben is. So there's a little bit of manipulation going on here, even in the seeming good intentions. Verse 23, so when Joseph came to his brothers, hey, brothers, right? Reunion, I found you. What do they meet him with? They stripped him of his robe. 
the robe of many colors that, the, that he wore. And they took him and threw him into a pit. And the pit was empty. There was no water in it. What a welcomed reception, right? They gather him up and they beat the tar out of him, take off his clothes and toss him into a pit. Thankfully, there was no water in it or he likely would have drowned. But they toss him into it. And then, after the deed was done, look in verse 25. I guess all that beating up, all that stuff, they worked up a little bit of an appetite, huh? They sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites. Ishmael, these are actually distant relatives of theirs. Ishmael was a, was a uh, you could say, an uncle or great uncle coming from Gilead. These were, uh, they're, they're travelers. They're coming from Gilead with their camels, say, bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. So they're merchants. They're, they're carrying these things to go and sell and trade. And then, verse 26, then Judah said to his brothers. Now, Judah is the fourth in line. You have uh, uh, Reuben is the first, and then the next one, anyone know? Simeon, Levi, and Reuben, or and Judah, rather. And so Judah is the fourth in line, and so he speaks up. He says, what profit is if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Here, he's a schemer. Come, verse 27, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. Like, there's some sentiment there, right? He's our brother, we can't kill him but we can surely make some money off of him, can't we? <laughs> and his brothers listened to him. Then the Midianite traders passed by. They pulled uh, Joseph up. Imagine that hand reaching down. Wouldn't you be a little skeptical? Guys, you just threw me down in here. Now, now what's going to happen? Does he know what's going to happen? We don't know. But they left him out of the, lifted him out of the pit, and they sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt. Who else do we know was betrayed for 20 shekels of silver? Jesus. Some foreshadowing here, right? So they, they sell him for money. And then look what happens, verse 29. When Reuben returned to the pit, so apparently Reuben had this great idea. He was going to go. He left. He comes back to the pit. He sees that Joseph's not in the pit. He tears his clothes. And he returned to his brother. He said, the boy is gone. And I, where shall I go? It foiled my plan. I was going to get on dad's good side. And then they took Joseph's robe, so they have to deceive dad. They have to come up with some sort of plan. Well, what are, what are we going to tell dad? This is his favorite son. What's going to happen? So they conspire together. Verse 31, they took Joseph's robe. They slaughter a goat. They dip the robe in the blood, and they take the robe of many colors, and they bring it back to their father and said, this we have found. Please identify whether this is your son's robe or not. Do you think they know if it's Joseph's robe? Of course they do. Of course they do. A fierce animal, well, he, he identified and said, it is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn into pieces. This is an ugly situation. And then Jacob, the dad, he tears his garments. There's a lot of tearing of garments happening in this chapter, right? They're just ripping their clothes off. And they put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him. But he refused to be comforted and said, no, I'm not going to be comforted. He's so distraught. He's so overcome with emotion. He says, no, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. He will go to his deathbed. He will go to the grave in mourning. He will never get over the grief and the tragedy of losing this son. And thus his father wept for doesn't all this sound like just a juicy afternoon soap opera? A good telenovela? 
That was all the makings for a hit show in this, doesn't it? Jealousy, hatred, murder, intrigue. Will dad believe it? Will they be found out? Will someone rat them out? Will somebody's conscience get the best of them? You know, what's going to happen to Joseph? Will, will we ever hear from him again? There's some, this is like an afternoon show. And I, you know, I was reading this, and people say that the Bible is boring. It's stale. Read these chapters and just wait till next week in chapter 38. It gets even crazier. It's not boring. But what's the purpose of all this? This is just a story of another messed up family. Is this just a juicy story to get us to keep reading the scriptures? What is God doing here? This brings us back to our main point but it's this, it's teaching us that following God can result in harm and heartache. So what do we do? We, we embark with faith. These brothers' deception that is happening here is highlighting this point that even when we follow the Lord, see, Joseph is just an innocent bystander. If anyone has been the victim of a messed up family situation, it's Joseph, Right? He didn't choose to be born to the certain mom that he was. He didn't choose to be his dad's favorite. He didn't choose to have these dreams, et cetera, et cetera. He was just placed there. And these things happen to him. Completely innocent. At this point, a man of integrity, just doing what his dad told him to do, wearing the clothes that were given to him, just going to check on brothers as, as uh, his dad ordered him to but sometimes we uh, live our life, we come to stories like this, and we wonder, okay, what do we do here? And this confronts this wrong mentality, I think, that we uh, come into life with, that I deserve a life of happiness and comfort. It confronts our sense of entitlement, that, that's, and that's really the American dream, not the biblical purpose or our biblical promise that I just deserve a life of happiness and comfort. And we, we approach life oftentimes with, with a, like a coin machine faith. If, you know, if I just put a coin in, then I can enjoy the ride. It's like a cause and effect. If, if I do blank, then God will give me blank, right? If I, if I just go to college, if I uh, get good grades, if I get the right degree and I do the right internship, then as soon as I'm out, I'm going to get the high paying job that I've always wanted right away. We kind of approach things like that. Or we think in regards to marriage. If I save myself for marriage, I marry the right person, I do all the right things, then God's going to give me the family that I want. Two boys, two girls, two years apart, and they're all going to be beautiful and healthy and happy for the rest of my days and honor me and all that stuff. We think that, you know what, if I just raise them right and I get them in the good schools and I get them a good education and I keep them in church every Sunday, then at the end, they're just going to turn out to be perfect little children who love the Lord and do everything. If we just do all these things, or on the other end of life, if I live a life of frugality and I save and I invest in the right things, and then, uh, then I can uh, retire early and live a life of ease and comfort the rest of my days. And we think, okay, if I just do all the right things, then what the outcome is going to be exactly what I want. And then we get to the point and we find out that life doesn't play out exactly like we thought. And we can get mad at God like a bunch of grumpy toddlers not getting our way. But the hard but better reality for us and what this story is teaching us is it's that bad things can happen even when we follow God. That has to be our starting place. 
that our plans are not better than God's plans. And along the way, seeming bad things can happen. Otherwise, we will always be disappointed when we start from a place of entitlement and and this mentality that, well, God owes me this. No, he doesn't. But when we start with an understanding that God is, by his grace, working with a bunch of messed up people, including me, and he's calling them to live a life that seems ludicrous to a watching world, then what can we expect to be along the way but some bumps and some bruises as God is working in us, as we embark on this journey of faith with the Lord, knowing that those bumps aren't surprises to the Lord, even when they hit us unexpectedly. But all throughout the New Testament, we are told to expect trials and difficulties. First Peter 4 tells us, don't be surprised at the fiery trials that come upon you. And even in the midst of them, those scriptures would tell us that we are to be joyful in them. We're to be joyful in them, even in the bad things. Why? Why are we joyful? Because it means two things. One, that God is with us and God is working through them in us. And where else would we rather be? God working in us and God working through them, providentially working out all things, producing something greater than we could have ever dreamed in us. That's what's happening in this story. How do we do that? How do we live this life? How do we, this is not necessarily a great feel-good message when we come to the understanding that, yeah, bad things can happen even when we follow God. How do we get through it? Look how this chapter ends, verse 36. What's the first word, particularly if you have the ESV? Meanwhile. We look for the meanwhiles in life. The meanwhiles of what God is doing this. Don't miss this because it appears just to be random details of what is happening behind the scenes. We know Joseph has just been sold to, to these traders and that's what's, that, that's where we're left off with Joseph and then they go back and they're telling dad and we're, we're just kind of left hanging. We're, well, what happened to Joseph? And we get this, the, the minuscule details, the Midianites had sold him to, to, in Egypt to Potiphar who just happens to be an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard it's more like meanwhile god is at work meanwhile in the midst of all the crud that's happening in the midst of all the the bad things that are happening meanwhile god is at work in the midst of the mess joseph is in god is using the midianites and potiphar to accomplish his purposes the story is not over and it's going to take decades for Joseph to figure out what the purpose is, to see it, to know that God is at work in the mess. But beloved, bad things happening does not mean that God is absent. Bad things happening does not mean that God is absent. It might just mean that God is at work in your life more than he's ever been. It might just mean that he is at work more than he's ever been, that he's doing something so profound that you would not believe it even if he told you in advance. The mess you find yourself in, the pit that you've been thrown into, the slavery that you've been sold into, whatever the situation may be in your life, they're just the pieces that God is using to accomplish his good work in you. You may not be able to see what that good work is just yet, but you can be sure that even if you don't see it until heaven, that it's good because God's work is always good always good so even when bad things happen 
We cling to his good work, knowing his name, knowing his great love for us that never changes. Let's pray. God in heaven, what a great chapter.